Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. In the September issue, Harper's senior editor, Rachel Poser, writes about the politics of archaeology in Jerusalem, where excavations often serve as sources of historical legitimacy and territorial claims. The city of David, the ancient site believed to be the seat of the biblical Judean dynasty, lies across the Green Line in the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Silwan, on what are perhaps the most contentious few miles of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The city of David is controlled by a settler organization known as Elad, which has turned it into a kind of archaeological Disney World, aimed at establishing Israeli precedence over the area. Elad has been working with the government to evict Palestinians from their homes near the site and move in hundreds of settlers, rebalancing the population in order to make Jerusalem impossible to divide in any future political agreement. Poser, who was once a doctoral student in archaeology, spoke to Palestinians and Israelis who live and work in Silwan, including Rafi Greenberg, a professor of archaeology at Tel Aviv University, who has been a vocal critic of the uses of his field for transparently political purposes by settlers. Quote, The use of archaeology as a legitimizer of the state has become a hallmark of Netanyahu, he said in the story. Archaeology has become part of the conflict. End quote. In this episode, Poser and Greenberg consider how ancient history is shaped by contemporary concerns, as well as propose more ethical practices for investigating the past. So I wanted to start with some of the basics. When most people think of archaeology, they have a few reference points from pop culture that come to mind most prominently, Indiana Jones and I actually have to admit I've never seen an Indiana Jones movie, Um, but from what I've gathered, he doesn't abide by archaeological (laughs) best practices, far too many people dying in the field. Um, But I wanted to ask just what is archaeology and how do do we glean information about human history from digging in the ground? What is archaeology? I guess archaeology is uh, understanding human lives, communities, through their material remains. And the question of antiquity is secondary to that, so that we can do it for any period you can imagine. It can be for deep prehistory, and it can be for contemporary society. It's the method of looking at things that have been forgotten. And there there are many different ways of putting this. Some people will say buried things. Mm -hmm. Some people will say antiquities. But I prefer just to to look at it as things that have lost their obvious function. You know, we've lost track of what they were, what people did Mm -hmm. with them, or if it's spaces, what people did in them. And then we're looking at that again and and trying to to re-inhabit those places and reanimate those things and the activities around them. Mm -hmm. So it's less about finding precious things, although that can be very exciting, than it is about understanding how a particular place evolved through time by identifying the layers of settlement there and establishing a relative chronology. I don't think people are that familiar with the idea of relative chronology. If you want to understand kind of, if you want to tell us a little bit about how an archaeologist actually figures out when something happened. Yeah, I mean, most most things and places don't have little plaques on them that say <laughs> when they're from. Right. You know, they don't have, uh, you know, Hannibal was here, that kind of thing. And people didn't usually leave graffiti to to inform us of that. So most people, when they go about their business, don't have a sense of history. Even if they're doing um, bureaucratic work, you know, they're shuffling papers around, but they're not writing what happened today on the news. So you can be in the middle of a terrible crisis, but your job is just to make sure that, you know, the bread trucks get in on time and, you know, the... The stuff is unloaded in the store, and that's all you're going to see in the, in the papers or in the, in the documents. And when we're dealing with stuff that isn't documents, then it's even less tied to, to events, you know. So what we're seeing when we look at, at things are just everyday behaviors and usually accumulated bits and remnants of everyday behaviors. Now, the only thing that uh, we can use to sort of figure out how long things took, how long things were in the ground before we saw them, is uh, to use methods either from the natural sciences or from the social sciences. 
So methods from the nat natural sciences can inform us through all kinds of um, laboratory procedures, how long it's been since this thing was alive and kicking, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And methods from the social sciences tell us how long it takes to do things, how long a pot will survive, or how often the styles change. How do people arrange their lives? What is the lifespan of a village? That kind of thing. And then putting those two together, together with the occasional anchor, the occasional um, intersection of a find with some known historical event, maybe a, a coin that has a date on it, or a scarab, you know, an ancient Egyptian scarab that has the name of the king on it. These occasional crossroads between the finds and sort of formal history give us enough points to, and, and we use the, the other things that I mentioned to, f to fill in the blanks. You're describing quite a sophisticated version of, of archaeology, and it hasn't always been that way. Do you want to talk a little bit about the origins of the, of the field and, and how it's evolved? There are different theories about where to start archaeology, but right. most people start it where people began to collect antiquities in earnest, that is, they, they collected antiquities with an eye to understanding ancient life. Now this happened, um, it started in the Renaissance and it became increasingly popular in the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. And the beginning of scientific archeology span is somewhere in the 19th century when people started. It came together with other sciences like evolution and uh, taxonomies and, and natural history and people started putting together this deep record of, of human life. But it's, it's worth noting that in some parts of the world, people always had an appreciation of ancient things. So that you'll find it in ancient texts, biblical texts, other texts. Babylonian kings mentioned their predecessors. People had a sense that people had come before. Mm -hmm. So the difference between archaeology and antiquarianism, or archaeology and interest in ruins, or old things, is, I guess, in, um, in, in the social and political media that archaeology developed in the, in the mid and late 19th century. Which, which was, was closely linked with imperialism. Imperialism and colonialism. Mm -hmm. And this was, you know, the interest that these imperial powers had, one in knowing the world and understanding it, uh, in order to control it, and uh, two, to bring back the treasures of antiquity to the storehouses, you know, the temples of modern nations, which are the big museums mm -hmm. that usually look like temples. And then, you know, they've got uh, a cellar or a safe. Things are protected in there, and it's, it's, like, it's like having gold in your coffers. Instead of gold, though, it's antiquities. This is like hard currency that shows that you are an imperial power that is the heir to the ancient empires and the ancient civilizations. Mm -hmm. Moving ahead a bit to, to the foundation of Israel as a country, and specifically, even before the founding, um, archaeology was particularly important for nation building and the sense of shared identity, forming a sense of shared identity among Jews who were coming to the country from all over the world. Can you talk about how archaeology played into that process? There were some sites like Masada that I was not able to treat in the story, but that are incredibly important for that, that history. Yeah, th this is a long history because you really can't start in 1948 or, you know, or, or even with the beginning of Zionism. It isn't that simple. The, the first archaeologists in Palestine, in Ottoman Palestine, were from the West. They were mainly British. Germans, French, you know, from the, from the big empires. And the British had a special relationship with the Holy Land. They considered themselves as the natural heirs to, to Palestine. Palestine was theirs. That's how they described it back home in London. Palestine was theirs. And this idea that the archaeology is somehow, by, by knowing it and making the present ephemeral and the past real, this is something very fundamental which I think was picked up later by uh, Jewish and then Israeli archaeologists, but it wasn't there from the start. 
it's, it's something the British brought with them. This idea that the real Palestine is the one that you don't see. Mm-hmm. The one that you have to wait until the, the lights go down and, you know, in twilight and, and the, and the, and, and the uh, sunlight is flickering. And then you can start to imagine what the Holy Land actually looks like. And it's a very romantic, romanticized and romantic idea and an Orientalist idea. Now, the, uh, the Zionists, when they first came, they had no interest in all of that. They had very little interest in the past because they were a revolutionary movement. And there's, um, you know, endless quotes I could give you about how you have to throw out the past if you're a revolutionary and a socialist on top of that. Mm -hmm. You really have to chuck out all of history. History is is a dead weight. And many Zionists saw history as a dead weight, and there was only a minority that were interested in the past and thought that it had relevance to this... um, new future that they were imagining. So it took quite a while, decades, before archaeology caught on. Mm-hmm. And it really caught on only after the state was established. So this idea that archaeology was born together with Zionism, I don't think is accurate. Mm-hmm. I think they, they, uh, the early Zionist archaeologists had a hard time convincing their peers that there was any point to preserving the past. The past had to be thrown out alongside with all of the, you know, primitiveness as they saw it of local culture, with all the baggage of imperialism that all had to be chucked out and a new start had to be made. And to be honest, I think this still, this strand is still very powerful in Israel. So that this idea that archeology span is the national hobby this had only a very brief period of, of ascendance, so to speak. In the 50s, or when would you put that? First decade, maybe decade and a half, into the mid-60s, mm-hmm. um, up to 67. And then, you know, everything changed after 67. And nowadays, this connection between sort of right-wing nationalism and archaeology is an, a new invention and it's an uneasy connection. I, I'm not sure it's either side is too comfortable with it. When would you say that that connection got forged? There's uh, late Michael Feigo, who's a sociologist, wrote about settler archaeology. And he sort of was able to show how the settlers became interested in archaeology. They weren't originally interested in archaeology, but they became interested as, as they became middle class. So because archaeology is such a middle-class occupation, you need a certain amount of leisure and, and, you know, to think about that kind of thing. So, so among the settlers, it didn't become popular until they had actually succeeded in their initial political uh, project of having the settlements become acceptable to, to the Israeli public or at least to the government. And they, they're definitely in the lead. That is, they're, they're pulling this train behind them. So, so, so they set the tone, and people like Netanyahu and, and, and pe- others in his government follow suit. But despite the fact that they often use archaeological tropes or finds to show off or to, you know, to make a statement, I don't believe that it has a lot of power in, in modern Israeli society. What about in terms of international visitors? Yeah, so of course we've all seen these um, these videos of of the American ambassador breaking down a wall and a tunnel and all that stuff. Well, let's explain that for people who have not read the story. <laughs> um, one of the issues in Jerusalem, in ancient Jerusalem's archaeology, is that a lot of the area of ancient Jerusalem is currently built up with mostly Palestinian, but also a few Jewish homes. And it's difficult to excavate from above. So what has been happening in recent years is a lot of excavations that are beneath the ground in tunnels. And they're going every which way in ancient Jerusalem. So that's uh, something we might circle back to later on. Mm-hmm. But uh, a couple months ago, there was sort of a, um, an event uh, in one of these tunnels celebrating... I don't know what they were celebrating. The opening, the opening, yes, the opening of tourists. a new branch of a, a tunnel or something like that. 
And then they invited a lot of press and the American ambassador and Mrs. Netanyahu and a few other luminaries from the Israeli right to carry out a sort of symbolic breaking down of barriers inside this tunnel. I thought the optics of that event were so strange and so revealing in that if this is an archaeological dig, this is a road that is believed to have been used by first century AD Jewish pilgrims to go from the pool at the base of the hillside up to the Temple Mount. And the opening ceremony involved a brick wall that they had erected in the tunnel that they're smashing down. Mm -hmm. It had nothing... There was nothing educational about it. It's It was entirely a kind of image of power and of breaking through to a territory that they consider theirs. I thought it was a very, yeah, a sort of revealing choice in terms of, you know, if this is all to educate people about ancient Jerusalem, you know, why is Sheldon Adelson swinging a hammer underneath a Palestinian <laughs> yeah, home? Yeah, hardly. And, and building with bricks is not even a, a Middle Eastern uh, thing. Oh, you know, sure, but that's, you're, that's way too sophisticated. <laughs> so, so this was made for TV by yeah, some American, you know, mm-hmm. who, who imagined people here in New York looking at it and saying, oh, that's a brick wall. I know what that is. Mm-hmm. But in Israel, it, it, I, I think it would have fallen pretty flat. But they were happy to see the American ambassador down there asserting Israel's right to rediscover this route from the pool to the temple. And that just shows you how, in this case, archaeology is just a vehicle and a, and a pretty lame one for allowing settlers, whom we haven't talked about yet, to sort of reinvent themselves as guardians of the temple. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the settlers. We focused in the article on this group Elad that is controlling one of the most important digs in Jerusalem, many of the most important digs in Jerusalem, the the city of David, which is believed to be, if not the ruling place of David himself, certainly of many of his descendants. And all of this is happening in East Jerusalem in and around the homes of about 5,000 Palestinians. So you were involved in that dig early in your career as an archaeologist. Can you talk about the the sort of evolution of that space and and its changing importance to the settler movement? Maybe we should take a couple of steps back and talk about Jerusalem, archaeology in Jerusalem, and especially of ancient Jerusalem. One of the things that for at least 100 years since excavations began in earnest and using sort of modern methodologies, Jerusalem has always or has never actually supplied the goods. It has always failed to supply the goods. And the longer you excavate... Meaning what? Meaning evidence of the biblical truth? I mean, real, tangible evidence of things that we know about. Mm -hmm. You know, the names of the kings, uh, evidence of the temple, uh, inscriptions that would tell us something about everyday life in Jerusalem. You know, stuff from the Bible. Prophets. Something, you know, anything. Give us something. You know, <laughs> So that hasn't been forthcoming. And that has created a lot of pressure around archaeology. That is, um, people excavate and they don't find the stuff. And people who are expecting any day, you know, the prophecies tell us that things are supposed to happen. It's, it's, it's Christian, but it's also on the Jewish side. You expect to find the actual, and, and, and the more we insist that our identity is the same as, as, as that of the ancient kings, then the more we expect to find these things. And then archaeology fails to, to produce. And that's, it's an interesting question why, and maybe you'll remember to get back to that later. But So back when I was beginning to excavate there as a, as a young student, just starting out in archaeology, I also had that expectation. Mm-hmm. And this was the first scientific, large-scale excavation in that part of ancient Jerusalem, which is considered the most ancient part, near the spring of Ichon, near the spring, the copious spring around which the earliest life in Jerusalem had developed, you know, thousands of years before the modern era. So we were expecting any day for something to come up. But as the weeks went by, and all that came up was pottery. You know, I started to understand as, as a beginner that archaeology wasn't providing uh, 
that, that sort of instant gratification, that it's a much longer process of interpretation and examination and analysis. And we began to develop a sense as archaeologists that we were, we were the ones doing science. We had the patience. We had the method. Mm-hmm. We had the longest view in the room. And, you know, up there people are expecting finds any day, but now all of us, you know, now that we were initiated, we knew it was a, it was a long-term project. When you visit Jerusalem these days, if you don't have a soundtrack accompanying you and you just use your eyes or your other senses to see what is actually there, it is not very informative. Mm-hmm. It looks like a pile of stones. I think I told you that when I took my dad to visit my excavations, and after about an hour of telling him, you know, it's, this is the Iron Age and this is the Bronze Age, and he said, you're making all this up. I don't see any of it, you know. And at that point, I understood that, yeah, you don't see any of it. I, I mean, I think that that's true of more than just archaeology in Jerusalem. I think excavations are, are pretty hard for a lay person to come and look at the ground and get anything out of it. And that's why the the interpretive materials and the control of these sites and the narratives that are you know set up around them are so important mm-hmm. because they confer so much power on the person who's doing the interpreting. So so this site was just sitting there with the stones and and the you know un, un, unenlightening walls and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I don't know if you know that um, the famous trope of uh, a series of small walls. You know I do. One? Yes. <laughs> well, I know the Eddie Izzard bit. Is that yes, what you're saying? Yes, the referring? Eddie Izzard bit. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's what it was. And when the settlers came around, and they had their own agenda of occupying the nearest bit of real estate to the Temple Mount that they could get their hands on. That was their agenda. This is Elad, who you mentioned a few times. So this settler organization uh, started out by looking at these meager and uninformative remains, saying, look, you archaeologists left. We don't see a thing here. Let's build our own neighborhood here. It's a large, empty space. Let's just build some Jewish houses here, and we'll be next to the Temple Mount, and we'll fulfill our destiny. And this is in the 90s? This is in the uh, early 90s. And at first, they got support from the then-government and the minister who was in charge, who was Ariel Sharon, later became prime minister. And the archaeologists were opposed to that in a big way. And managed, and because of political changes, when Rabin was elected in 1992, so uh, that initial plan was scrapped, and the settlers had to look for an alternative. And then they came up with a brilliant alternative, and that is, let's take these public spaces, which are archaeological spaces, and turn them into a machine that will produce not only revenue, but will produce ideological support for our project. So they incorporated archaeology into their settlement project. That's what, that's what they succeeded in doing, really in an almost inspiring way. They, they were so clever about it. And they managed to, I think, be in tune with the times, with sort of neoliberal economics, and saying that things can't be left to the government, they're inefficient, they're slow, we can do it better, we'll mm-hmm. get private donors, we'll turn this into a business, you'll see. And they did succeed in just bringing in thousands and tens of thousands of people and and turning this really almost meaningless site, as it was before, into something that is that is like a, you know turbocharging their settlement project. Mm-hmm. And how is it doing that? Can you talk about if you go there, what messages are you expected to absorb and and maybe talk about the the so-called palace of david and some of the other kind of things that they have emphasized yeah they they've taken actual finds or parts of of buildings and parts of interpretations proposed by archaeologists and and they've created a narrative from these bits and pieces that supports a view first of the ancient kings, the Judean kings, starting with David and his and his descendants, showing that this was the place in which there um, was the center of that kingdom, 
in which the, the wealthy people of that kingdom lived. Some of them left their names behind, and these can be shown. And then stringing that together, ignoring all other, other parts of history as, as you go, but this, this selectivity is, is always in play in every, in every tourist site. We mm -hmm. know that. They've connected that to this narrative of the pilgrims, the pilgrimage route from the pool at the bottom of the hill to the temple at the top of the hill. And they are the guardians of that route. So they, they, they sort of take you out of time. First of all, they take you underground mm -hmm. for a large part of your tour so you don't have to see the grubby reality at ground level, which is full of not only the poverty of the Palestinian homes, the dysfunction of the municipality, the garbage that's lying around, the um, very crude methods used to get into the sub, you know, into, into the substructure. I mean, you remember walking around the streets there. You know, you have these cranes and all kinds of barriers, and it's really very unsightly. Yeah, it was amazing to me just how much construction and excavation was going on at any one time. Construction, excavation, transportation, you know, people milling around, and it's very difficult to see anything. Mm -hmm. So they need to get you underground really quickly. And what they've done is they've developed this subterranean sort of uh, reality in a, in a successful way so that you can spend most of your time on that tour beneath the ground. And then you're given, it's, um, I call it, a ride, as if you're in, in, in an amusement park. If you're taking the horror shows ride, right? You're on mm -hmm. the train and things pop out at you. The ghost falls on you here and the skeleton there and the spider webs and all of that. And it's the same kind of thing here. You know, you're, you're in this tunnel. You can't leave the tour. There's nowhere to go. You're in a very confined space and, and then things pop out at you. Oh, here's the spring. Um, here are the steps that What's his name? Joab uh, climbed up the pipe to conquer Jerusalem. Uh, he, here's the channel in which people were hiding from the Romans. You know, mm -hmm. there's all kinds of stuff happening there. And then you suddenly emerge and you're underneath the Western Wall. And, oh, how did I get here? That's amazing, you know, and that kind of thing. So it's, it's a nice theme park ride. Mm -hmm. And the story that you get is the story of that ride. Right. I mean, the, the ride seems to be a reaction to what you were talking about earlier, that Jerusalem has kind of failed to produce the mm -hmm. the archaeological goods, so to speak, mm -hmm. that actually in the city, the, the 10th and 11th centuries BC, which is when we believe that, you know, David and his immediate descendants would have lived, is very, very thin mm -hmm. in the archaeological record. It's just surprisingly so, that just in general, the times when the Bible says that Jerusalem was thriving are the times that it's often hardest to find mm -hmm. evidence in the archaeological record. And that's just a, an interesting mystery for archaeologists to puzzle out. But means that in order to have the kind of experience that they want for tourists, they've built all of this infrastructure around the site itself. So they have a 3D movie and they have a, you know, harp music playing that's supposed to evoke David and just all of these extras that tell the story that the, the site itself isn't quite telling. They've got the extras, but there's a lot more going on there. And, and what they've done is that they've, they've managed to recruit uh, mainstream artists, you know, performers, politicians, movie actors. Everyone comes and either does something on the site or at least provides a testimonial to how the site affected uh, him or her. Mm -hmm. So that they're, they're, they're using media, they're using popular culture to build up this, this sort of fake story. And at what point do you enter the story? You got involved in archaeology at a very young age, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, I was sent, we had a teacher's strike, so no one was going to school when I was about 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And this was almost immediately after you arrived in I Israel from the States. I just arrived in Jerusalem. And the parents were, were asked by the schools to keep the kids off the streets. They had heard of an excavation down by the Western Wall, and they sent me and my brother, who never became interested in archaeology, <laughs> uh, to dig, along with uh, volunteers from the UK and other places. 
And it was winter, it was uh, November or December, so it was freezing cold and raining, and we also worked underground, but in an ancient sewer. So mm -hmm. we were cleaning out an ancient sewer and a few other subterranean uh, structures in Byzantine Jerusalem, Roman or Byzantine Jerusalem. And that was the first taste that I ever had of an excavation, and it uh, immediately connected with the kind of stuff you read when you're 10 and 11 years mm -hmm. old, you know, uh, The Hobbit and mm -hmm. uh, King Arthur and uh, the Round Table and that kind of stuff. So I thought it was very cool. But I did not go back and I didn't remain an archaeologist um, at age 12. <laughs> Actually did other things and found myself digging uh, again when I was about 19 or 20 as, as a student. And I was not an archaeology student, but the second time around, I got hooked. Mm -hmm. And was that at the City of David in the that 80s? That was at the City of David in 1979. 1979. And at that point, was that before the Haredi protests, or did you see some of that when you were there? Well, I, I ended up staying on that dig for four, four seasons, uh -huh. four years. So the... Um, the excitement around the excavation at that time was was not because of settler issues, but because of the claim by ultra-Orthodox rabbis that the excavation was damaging an ancient Jewish cemetery. And this caused mass demonstrations of Haredim during the summer, during the excavation season. And that got a lot of publicity. Mm -hmm. And they, um, they demonstrated, they slashed tires of... of, uh, of of our cars, of those of us who had cars. They threatened the director of the excavation. Uh, they excommunicated him. They did all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. That was in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And then at what point, you talked earlier about feeling like a, as an archaeologist, you were a kind of avatar of science and of the long term. At what point did you start to feel that your role as an archaeologist was in tension with your politics? This came later, not, not while I was excavating in, in the city of David, because I, I think there was there's something that's worth mentioning, and that is the relationship between excavators and local Palestinian people in the village at that time. So, you know, I, I mentioned before that Israelis were sort of heirs to the British tradition of archaeology. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, the City of David excavations directed by Igor Shiloh in the, in, the, in the late 70s and 80s considered themselves a continuation of the Kathleen Kenyon excavations. Kathleen Kenyon was a very well-known British archaeologist who worked in Jerusalem right up till 1967. And she left because she felt she couldn't excavate under um, Israeli control. But the new excavations that happened just a decade after she left they considered themselves as heirs to that scientific tradition. And, and in this British tradition, you would arrive at the place that you're excavating in, and usually you'd find local villagers who would be your workmen and would be your guards, and they would carry out mostly menial tasks in the excavation while you had the staff, the, the um, academic staff. And this tradition was carried forward in the Israeli dig. So we would come from the university, which was on Mount Scopus, just a, a short distance away, and then excavate during the summer for two months, renting out spaces from the, from the local people, from the Palestinian families, uh, employing them in various tasks on the dig, and interacting with them in a friendly way. I would say it was sort of an economic collaboration. Of mm -hmm. course, they were not invited to be part of the excavation or to participate in its goals or its aims or its, uh, the way it would be presented to the public, but that's something that was not spoken of back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. That's something that developed much later. So in this sense, we had uh, sort of everyday relationships with, with the people there. And I think the fact that we had these everyday relationships with the people there, it sort of masked the political situation to me as a participant. Mm -hmm. I couldn't see beyond that. You know, I, if you were to ask me, so what are you guys doing there, you, you Israeli guys? Why are you digging in East Jerusalem? I would say, no, but you know, we're doing this together with the people there. We're just renting spaces from them. 
when we leave, we're gone. You know, we're no longer there. We don't interfere with their everyday lives. Uh, you know, why should anyone care? And the awakening, as you, I think, called it before, happened at a different excavation, which was on the West Bank. Mm -hmm. And much later in my um, academic life, I went back to look at how much excavation carried out by Israelis since 1967 took place across the Green Line, you know, across the, the previous borders of, of Israel before it had captured Sinai and the West Bank and the Golan in 1967. And I discovered that at least 30%, but maybe a lot more of the excavations that were happening back then in the first couple of decades after 67 occurred across the lines. And many of the excavations I was on as a student were either in the Gaza Strip, in Sinai, or in the West Bank. So on one of these West Bank excavations, I discovered that we were living in a Jewish settlement, getting paid by the settlers, by the local council. But the claim was that we were carrying out a scientific excavation for the sake of science. And that's when I got to thinking about this. I mean, I had seen before working in the Gaza Strip that th the relationship was, was complicated. Mm -hmm. Everything was mediated by the occupation. But it took a while for that to sink in. And it really came home to me in that excavation, which I think was in 83 or 84. When did you discover that you were being paid by settlers? At the end of the excavation, <laughs> yeah. Uh, on the la I mean, we were promised, uh, when we went out there, we said, but, you know, it's a, a settlement. It shouldn't be political. And he said, don't worry, there's no politics involved. None at all. But the minute we got that check that was signed by the head of the settler council, I got quite upset, but probably as upset with myself as I was with, with the person who had, who had lured us to this excavation. And that's when I determined not, not to do it again. Mm -hmm. And apart from the source of your funding, were there other indications on that dig that the archaeology was being oh, compromised? Oh, absolutely, yeah. The, the person we were excavating with had explained to us that every excavation should have clear marginal returns. It should always give you something beyond the previous one. So, and that marginal return was created by a story that he would tell around the excavation. It had to be a dramatic, a fantastic story. Anything less than that was considered by him a waste of time. So this excavation that we were on was at the famous, now famous, Mount Ebal altar. Mm -hmm. The altar on Mount Ebal near the, near the Valley of Shechem. And why is it now famous? It's famous because this stone structure, which is probably not an altar, the moment it was identified as an altar, it became synonymous with a biblical tale that's connected with the entry of the children of Israel into the promised land. Mm -hmm. And this is in the book of Joshua. And it's such an impressive story, and the site itself is so, is so dramatically located that it's, it's easy to, to buy into. Mm -hmm. Now he would guide different groups who came to visit the site. So we were excavating, doing the normal stuff, you know, cleaning the stones and looking at the pottery types and washing the pots and that kind of stuff and, and, and doing our meticulous um, recording and all of that. And we noticed that he had several different styles of presentation. If it was a group from the university, he'd pull out the plans and, you know, uh, put on his scientific hat. Mm -hmm. If it was a visit from somebody from the council, like local politicians, he would just whip out a Bible and describe the entire site in terms of passages from the Bible. And if it was school kids, you know, he would, he would go even further in that direction. And he told us every group that comes deserves their own story. So this was such a postmodernist thing to say at that time. <laughs> It's a uh, generous way of putting it. <laughs> that um, it really woke me up. You know, I, I just saw it happening, you know, right there in front of me. And I said, gee, uh, so that's how it works. And he knew that the settlers who were paying for his excavation would be invested Absolutely. in his interpretation of that and structure as an altar. But, but here's the thing, and this is, this is relevant to the Jerusalem story. You'll see in a moment. 
you remember he was giving a different spiel to the different people who came. Mm -hmm. Now, who do you think gave him the most love and the most support? The settlers. The settlers. Right. He was getting a lot of love and support from the settlers, whereas the his peers, the archaeologists, were giving him a cold shower. They were saying, ah, we don't buy this, and you're making this up, or, you know, you haven't convinced us. Where are the facts? You know, mm -hmm. where's the, I don't know, the, type, the typology? Where's the particular evidence that this was an altar? What kind of animals did you have here? And, you know, that kind of stuff. How old were they when they were, when they were slaughtered? So as the years went by, he discovered where his friends are. Mm -hmm. and where his enemies are. And he felt absolutely persecuted by archaeologists and bef befriended by the settlers. And slowly but surely, his description of the site veered in the direction that would give him the most positive coverage among the people who appreciated his work, whereas the rest who were against him in any case, you know, he said, you know, forget it. Yeah, I mean, and we know that this happens with every dig to a certain extent. It's a problem of needing funding and there are constituencies with interests in particular narratives and that cannot fail to shape, at least to some degree, uh, what is happening at the site and, and it's something that needs to be actively resisted. And um, But in Israel-Palestine, the stakes of, of those interpretations are, are drastically higher than most other you know, areas of the world. Speaking of who your friends are, there's been a lot of talk recently about the unholy alliance between evangelical Christians, particularly in the U.S., and the Israeli right wing, and the use of the term Judeo-Christian, uh, and the, the embrace of evangelical visitors at the City of David is sort of all part and parcel of this new alliance that is extremely lucrative for certain archaeologists uh, in Israel. And uh, we just learned today that Netanyahu says he will be, if he wins re-election, annexing part of the West Bank, and he cited U.S. support. So can you talk about what has changed more recently as the dynamics in U.S. politics have changed and have continued to shape what's going on both archaeologically and politically in Israel? Wow. <laughs> okay, we were talking before about how archaeology has failed to supply the goods. Mm -hmm. Now, who needs goods? You know, who needs the goods? The, the Jews never needed the goods. They carried on their religion and their faith and, and everything that went along with it and the practices without the goods, without the land, without the fines, without the physical connection to the country. And when the Zionists came and didn't need the past and were interested only in the future, they in fact were throwing out the Jewish past of the uh, diaspora as well as the local Jewish past. So who is it that needs actual stuff on the ground, facts on the ground, as someone once called it? If you think about it, there are not so many constituencies for that, for facts on the ground that actually need the things themselves. A lot of people can make do with the stories and the narratives and the myths and the traditions. The ones that need the stuff on the ground are the two big groups, are the settlers on the one hand, who have also thrown out diaspora Judaism, but they embrace the ancient past. So that's one group. And then you've got Protestant Christians and especially evangelical Christians who want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and of other personages from the Bible, and they want to see and see it for themselves. They don't want mediators. That's the thing. They don't want a mediator. They want to actually experience antiquity and experience the sites and the places. So um, these two groups are deeply committed to archaeology because it allows them to come to the place, and then they take over. They have their narrative, they have their experience, they have this epiphany, whatever it is that takes over when they're there. And they, and they don't need mediators anymore. They don't need science. They don't need any of that. And in a strange way, right-wing settlers who are supposedly Orthodox Jews in Israel, and they, they practice Orthodox Judaism in the sense of prayers and you know traditions of the household and that kind of thing. But in some senses, they are 
closely allied to evangelical Christians in the sense that they don't want mediation and anything that steers them away from the connection to the soil, to the ground, to the rocks, to the stones, is something that they would put to one side. They, they would prefer this direct connection, and they talk about it in, in sensuous terms and in, in physical terms. So those two groups are closely drawn to each other. Now, I'm not the right person. I'm an archaeologist. I'm not a sociologist or an anthropologist, but I think there's an interesting a fascinating anthropology of this kind of archaeology. And that is what uh, those two groups have in common. And this kind of evangelical sensibility is on the rise in a different sort of sector of ultranationalist Israelis, the Temple Mount movement as mm -hmm. well. I interviewed Gershon Salomon when I was in Jerusalem, and one thing he said to me is that he misses the first temple age. There's a real sense of nostalgia and wanting to recreate the past in the future. And the main tenet of the Temple Mount movement is a physical creation of mm -hmm. the, the, the Jewish temple on the Temple mm -hmm. Mount. And part of that effort is looking back archaeologically and trying to recreate the vessels and the pots and whatever was used for right. sacrifices and there's a in the temple. dystopian novel published by Ishai Sarid about a, a near future in which this kind of organization become, takes control of what's left of Israel after some nuclear holocaust. <laughs> and what he d describes there is that they have created their own rabbinical tradition, which is at odds with the traditional Jewish one. And mm -hmm. this rabbinical tradition allows them to do all kinds of things that traditional Judaism would not. And this was uh, very perceptive of him because they're definitely, you know, they're out there in, in a religious sense. Mm -hmm. They're trying to genetically re-engineer red heifers so that they right. can sacrifice them on the Temple Mount. Well, that's, yeah, that appears in a Michael Shaban novel and in and the Shai Sarid novel as well. Right. Anyway, the idea that there is a real desire to recreate the past and to bring the past physically back to life and that archaeology is a huge part of enabling that because it reveals what the first temple age looked like and there's an, a new investment in really seeing and experiencing it because of this drive to to bring it back <laughs> I mean, that's not the first temple period in, you know, quote unquote, that I'm familiar with. What I'm familiar with is, you know, a very crude way of life in terms of, of uh, creature comforts, okay? People living in pretty small huts, you know, stone houses and with a very simple material culture. And they have, there's no evidence in any of that for anything spiritual. I don't know what their spiritual life was like. And when you do see it, it's, it's something very concrete, like a little cult corner, a place to, to put, to, to, to burn some incense or something, you know. You don't see the first temple in archaeology. So saying that you can use archaeology to visualize the first temple is again exploiting archaeology or, or you know, sort of uh, manipulating it to an end that is not archaeological at all. One of my favorite things that you said to me was about exactly that, that archaeology and history are different because of the different bodies of material that they study, that archaeology gives insight into the lives of normal people who don't appear in most historical mm. texts. And... Do you want to talk a little bit about how you feel that archaeology, what that offers that this kind of very narrative-driven biblical history doesn't? Archaeology has the potential to give you a story that will be the story that hasn't survived, you know, mm -hmm. the, the voices of those who, who have no chance of hearing. That's almost, I think, our task in archaeology is to give voice to, to those who don't have a voice in history. And often it's just, you know, the people who were at home mm -hmm. versus the people who were out there, I don't know, fighting battles or, or writing uh, scrolls or something like that. So the people who were at home, and often it's largely women and children, 
you know, they have no voice at all in history, but a lot of what you excavate if you're in the household or in and around the household or in the town or in a village is of life at home. So that's one realm that is you know, unaccounted for in history. And then there's just the connections between people, the, the way people moved around, the way things moved around, mm -hmm. what was considered of value. These are all things that, that can be examined through archaeology and they're just not mentioned at all in the text. So the stories that, that I've been telling recently about archaeology, what people ate and how they ate and, you know, did they sit with their families? Uh, were they segregated or not? Did they eat the same things as their neighbors? Uh, did all the people come from the same place or were people coming in from different places? What was immigration like or migration? Did people die in the same village that they were born in? All of these questions are questions that archaeology deals with and that are just not there at all in, in the standard histories. Mm -hmm. And you've, in your own research, tried to move away from biblical periods in order to avoid some of these. Yeah, I have, because the magnetic properties of the biblical stories are, are so huge that as soon as you get near that, you're drawn into it. Mm -hmm. So people can hardly avoid, even if they're talking about the household, but it's in the biblical period then willy-nilly they find themselves talking about biblical subjects. Mm -hmm. Purity and impurity, that kind of thing. You, know, you start using the terminology of, of biblical studies or religious studies. So I, that is true. I chose to stay a little bit on the fringes of that, so much so that my um, department described the kind of work I do as proto-biblical, <laughs> which was... <laughs> They're still trying to connect yeah. you to it. Right, you know, somehow. This guy is setting the stage for the Bible. Mm -hmm. yeah. How did your summer go, your field season? You were at the Umayyad Palace with Tawhid, Yeah, it was right? in the winter. Oh, yeah. it was in the winter. The, the summer season was in the winter uh -huh. because uh, we're, we, we discovered that you don't have to excavate in, in um, 110 degrees. You know. <laughs> the excavation that was proto-biblical, that is, that was dealing with the 4th and 3rd millennia B.C., uh, one of the later phases at the same site mm -hmm. was from the early Islamic period. And there's a large, the foundations of a large Umayyad palace there called Al-Sinabra. Can you tell the story of its discovery? Because it has a kind of fascinating history. Yeah. So this site and, and everything comes together at this site. It will take a very long time to unravel all the strands here. But we're talking about a place that is a stone's throw away from Deganya, which is the first kibbutz ever, mm -hmm. and a stone's throw away from Kineret, which is the site of the um, earliest Zionist farm in the Jordan Valley. And this is right on the banks of um, the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee. Where, where the Jordan River exits the Sea of Galilee. So the site there was at first claimed by these agricultural settlements. They wanted to be part of their land, but it was soon discovered that it was an archaeological site. In fact, it was known it was an archaeological site, but they tried to ignore it for as long as they could. Mm -hmm. And that created a tension at the site between the people around the site who wanted it for farming and for other things that they wanted to do on the site and archaeology. And that's how come I know that Zionists didn't like archaeology to begin <laughs> with, because they were trying to turn this site into something else. So the first excavations there, and not only the first ones, but all of the first decades of excavation at this site called Tel Beit Yerach, or Khir Bet El Kerak, were salvage excavations. That, that is, they were excavations ahead of development. A school was being built, a road was being paved. Uh, and so on and so on. And the archaeologists, the different archaeologists working there, each one of them had to defend the site against development. That was the main enemy of archaeology was development. In one case, in 1950, a large structure was discovered just beneath the surface. And this was scheduled to be the site of a building by the kibbutz members nearby from Kutzat Kineret. So they wanted to build a uh, workers' seminar on one side of the site, and they wanted a little amphitheater, you know, like a place to have 
Well, they communal didn't do performances. Communal performances. They didn't have rock concerts back then. <laughs> We're talking about the 1950s, 40s and 50s. But yeah, to have a community activity. And he discovered this very large fortified enclosure. And it was very difficult to date. This is objectively. It was difficult to figure out when it was from. It had very little pottery in it, a handful of coins. The coins were all from the 8th century, 7th century, but no one had ever seen anything any construction from that time, and they couldn't connect the uh, coins with what they were seeing. They thought they were looking at Roman architecture, mm -hmm. and the coins were Islamic, and they, they couldn't make sense out of it. And this was a very early stage in the knowledge of Islamic architecture, and that's what they saw. They saw Roman architecture and a few Islamic coins. They said, okay, we have a Roman building, Roman period building, with some coins. At some point, they found an abscess, that is a uh, curved wall facing south. And it was facing, it wasn't in the direction of Mecca, nor was it facing east the way a church would face. It was facing the way a synagogue would be facing. And they declared this large fortified structure a synagogue. Mm. Soon enough, a uh, stone was found with very faint markings on it uh, that looked like a seven-branch candelabra. Mm -hmm. And this was a pillar base, and it was on the top of the pillar base, which is a strange place to have a carving. And this pillar base is there to this day. You can look at it. So we've got this um, stone with a candelabra, and we've got this south-facing apse. So the, the building is declared a synagogue and protected from further encroachment by the develop developers. Uh, not long after, the site is declared a national park, and it's called the Beit Erach Synagogue National Park. And at this point, what period do they think this is from? They think it's from the Roman period. The okay, late Roman, Roman era period. synagogue. Roman, uh -huh. Byzantine, yeah, on the border between the Roman and Byzantine period. And that's how it, you know, went into, into the literature. But there was no other supporting evidence for, for this identification. After 67, uh, the interest in the site declined because there were more exciting sites to be seen uh, in the Golan Heights and other parts of the country. And after more than a decade, the site was entirely abandoned and overgrown, and people had forgotten about it. When we returned in the early aughts, as you call them, mm -hmm. The site had completely disappeared. We were told it was buried and couldn't be seen anymore, but we went back anyway. And a scholar by the name of Don Whitcomb from the University of Chicago had written a paper saying he thinks that this so-called synagogue should be re-identified as an Umayyad, that is, early Islamic palace. And we went back to check that theory that he had put forward. He had put this forward on, on the basis of published material, but he hadn't been at the site. Mm -hmm. So we went back in 2009, together with an Islamic period archaeologist, Taufik Dadli, you met in Jerusalem, mm -hmm. and we did some soundings beneath the floors of this uh, large fortified structure, and lo and behold, we found 7th century coins beneath the floors. That means that the floors had to be laid uh, no earlier than the 7th century. And this, right. this actually redated the entire structure to the Islamic period, and we now know that it's a palace and it's being officially presented that way. And we'll soon have an opening of, of the conserved building as uh, an Umayyad palace. What we've been doing lately is looking for the mosque mm. that must have accompanied the palace because all of the Islamic caliphs were also spiritual leaders. And they could not just have a palace without a mosque attached to it. And was Don's theory that it was just an Umayyad palace in general or did he have a specific identification. Oh, he identified it with Asinabra, which is a name that has been attached to various locations around the site. So it had the name had stayed there, had survived even though the actual memory of this palace had been lost. Mm -hmm. And are you going back next year? What's uh, more to be Taufik done there? Tafik is excavating as we speak. Oh, exciting. Okay. Yes, he is there this week and he's looking for more evidence of, of this mosque. Uh, we found a large hall with many pillars in it. All of it dismantled down to the foundation, so we only have the bases of these pillars, but you can 
reconstruct the architecture just from these foundations. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, it's quite impressive. And then the last thing I wanted to ask you about is a trip that we took when we were in Jerusalem to Irganim, which is a neighborhood, a poor neighborhood in West Jerusalem, where there um, are lots of recent immigrants from North Africa and where you dug in the early aughts. We talked about that as a potential model excavation, and I was hoping you would describe how you envisioned that dig, how you planned that dig, and what makes it different in your mind from other kinds of excavations that are going on in the country. The story here is that I moved into this neighborhood in 1993 or 4, and I wasn't really familiar with the archaeology of it because every, almost every town and neighborhood in Israel has some archaeology in it if you, if you look deep enough. But then at some point I was contacted by members of the local community council uh, they had wanted to expand the community center, and they were told by the Antiquities Authority, you can't. It's an antiquity site. And they said, what antiquity site? And the Antiquities Authority said, this. And they were looking at a large garbage, what to them looked like a large garbage dump. So they asked me to come over, and this is in the late 90s, and um, tell them what I think. And I remember visiting there with my, um, with my kids and taking a step back and falling into a, into a, into a pit, into a cistern, <laughs> you know, into a rock-hard cistern. Every, it was just, the archaeology was invisible there. Mm -hmm. And I looked around and said, yeah, I, I can see why they say it's a site and there's this large mound that you saw mm -hmm. uh, overlooking it. And this is definitely in the literature. We know about these mounds there. Nobody knows what, what they are, but we know they're ancient. There's about half a dozen of them in the near, um, scattered in this neighborhood. And yeah, they won't let you build here. So they said, well, what can we do? And I said, well, you could excavate. How do we do that? Well, talk to the Antiquities Authority. Mm -hmm. They talked to the Antiquities Authority, and the next summer, they actually had someone from the Antiquities Authority organizing the local people to dig. But before that, they had carried out a cleanup of the site on their own, on their own volition, and carted out truckloads of junk. I, I think 15 trucks of, of sheer garbage. Mm -hmm. I mean, refrigerators and sofas and, and carcasses of dogs and all kinds of stuff like that. And there was a lot of evidence of drug use there. There were, um, you know, there were caves, man-made caves in which people would hang out and, and do their thing. So th this was being cleaned up by the local activists. When the Antiquities Authority archaeologist came, he had a very imperious attitude towards the local people, as, <laughs> as I described before, and this, even though these are not uh, villagers, but nonetheless. And he was giving them orders and scolding the kids for running around and for making noise and all kinds of stuff. And the people there told me that they're not enjoying this. You know, this is no fun. It, it's our excavation, but this guy is telling us who can come and who can't come and when we have to arrive and when we can leave and what we can do. And do you have a better idea? And I had just been reading about community excavations at that time, and I suggested, you know, let's do this together mm -hmm. and we'll talk about it and plan it together as an activity that will, that will come from the bottom up. And, and that's what we did. We first tried to get money for it in the traditional way, writing a request to grant making or to even to philanthropists, you know, mm -hmm. and getting famous people to sign the request. Didn't work. So we did it without money, just with the community center there, just giving us some logistic support. And the Antiquities Authority actually gave us tools and, and packaging material and stuff like that. And we just started excavating on our own According to the rules, you know, the prof proper license, I, I was permitted to do this work. And we worked on it together as a bottom-up project. We carried on with this work for between 2000 and 2006. I think we had one more season in 2008. And at the end of that time, a lot of the site had been excavated, cleaned up. You mentioned it in your story. And um, it became sort of a model for how 
or one way of doing archaeology, which mm -hmm. would involve local people. And there's a nice documentary film that was made during the 2006 season that sort of tells the story of, of, uh, of the interaction between archaeologists and, and mainly youth and mm -hmm. uh, families. And you're interested in figuring out how a decolonized archaeology might work and what that might look like. And do you consider this excavation to be a model of that kind of yeah, excavation? It, there's a lot of anxiety in, in the archaeological and among among reflective archaeologists about the imperialist and colonialist roots of archaeology in the 19th and 20th centuries. And we're, we're trying to understand if archaeological epistemology is inherently Western, modernist, you know, and colonialist, if there's any way of getting away from that. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that people have considered and conducted excavation here in the New World, it's with indigenous groups. In Australia, it's with indigenous groups. Uh, in other parts of the world where you don't have that clear-cut division between indigenous and European or something like that, it's a little bit more complicated. But it's a way of allowing the archaeologist to be less in the forefront or, or uh, com coming with all the knowledge, you know, on their side mm -hmm. and just applying their expertise to these uh, sort of, um, you know, tabula rasa, this, this uh, empty space. And it's viewing the space and the people that are in that space as knowledgeable contributors. And that is certainly a step towards decolonization because that counters the traditional colonialist narrative. And it imbues the local people and the space itself with agency and doesn't leave all the agency on the side of the person carrying out the expedition and so forth, the Indiana Jones that you mentioned before. Well, certainly the field will need to continue evolving because we are not all doing a decolonized archaeology yet. Not anywhere near it. Well, thank you so much for coming by. It was great to talk to you again. Thank you. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 